Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera, coming to you from a hotel room uh, in San Francisco area because I totally forgot to record this before going on travel. So if it sounds a little bit different, you know why. Anyway, I want to mention, um, since this is an episode we recorded with Colin Fleming, you might be aware, and you will by the end of this episode, that he is speaking uh, today, as I record this anyway, at Closure West. Uh, Closure West is going on right now, and we are once again publishing all of the videos the same day that they happen, so you can check out the conference if you are unable to attend. You can check out the talks, at least, in near real time. You can find those on YouTube on Closure TV. The URL is www.youtube.com slash user slash Closure TV. And of course, if you search for Closure TV, you'll get there just as well. Um, the other thing I want to mention today briefly is that uh, while we were, we, meaning the people at the show, I'm not there, were wandering around the hallway at Closure West, uh, we heard some interest in forming an Orange County, California Closure Meetup. Um, if you think you might be interested in that too, uh, send an email to Kim, our producer, that's Kim at Cognitech.com, and she will make sure that you get introduced to other interested closurists. Uh, I think the last thing I'll mention is there is a closure bridge coming up in Solingen, Germany. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. I'm sure if you're near there, you know how to say it correctly and you know what I'm talking about. Um, That's going to be held June 12th and 13th, and you can find out more about that at closurebridge.org. I think that's all we've got for you today. I won't hold you up any longer. We will go on to episode 77 of the Cognicast. things off okay let's go all right cool all right welcome everybody today is wednesday march 11th in 2015 and this is the cognicast today we are extremely pleased to welcome to the show all the way from new zealand something like 18 hours in my future colin fleming a developer and of course the developer of uh, cursive which is a of, of much interest right now in the closure community but we will talk more about that and other things momentarily uh before we go too much farther i mean i, I suppose i should say welcome colin <laughs> Thanks, Craig. Um, but Thanks I should all- oh, no, absolutely, it's our pleasure. And, and and of course, as I warned you, we will kick this off with a question, which is a question about art. I'm I'm deeply interested in art and people's experience of art, and so I always ask our guests to share some way that they have related to a piece of art somehow in in their life. So I wonder if you have uh, uh, something to share with us. Sure, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I could say I necessarily related to it, but I wanted to talk about a concert I went to probably, I guess, about ten years ago, probably or even more when I lived in London. And it was interesting. I received an email from some friends of mine. There was a, an email being sent around, and they said, "Hey, you know, you should come down to." I can't remember exactly where it was actually, to be honest. And uh, and there's going to be some people playing, and there's going to be a, a bit of an event happening. So I thought, okay. So I went down, and it was like I don't know what it, what it cost, like twenty quid or something. Um, so we went down with a group of friends. And it, it turned out to be a really, a really amazing event. So basically, they'd got a small group of people together. I think there must have been about 40 or 50 people. And they had an, this old theater. It was kind of like a, a sort of seedy old jazz club or something. And uh, and so you arrived, and they had these stairs going up, and they had candles up the stairs, and it was uh, really nice. And then you went up the top, and they gave you dinner. So they actually served you dinner with this thing. And so the, you know, there's all these people kind of hanging out. 
having dinner together and having a few drinks and then we went through to the to the main area where where the concert was going to be and they had a, a series of four different events and they were totally different um the first one was this guy doing this kind of crazy physical poetry i guess so it was it was very strange the second guy was actually the guitarist from the scorpions playing on his own and so he came out and he played for um, i don't know it must have been like it was like 25 minutes of pure guitar solo. It was extremely, uh, it was really cool, actually. And I actually can't remember what the third event was. But um, the fourth one, they'd said there was going to be a surprise guest. And it actually turned out to be Sky Edwards, the singer from Morchiba, who came mm. out. And she, and she sang with a string quartet. And it was really amazing. It, it was absolutely incredible to see her. And it's incredible to be in an event where you're, where you're that close to the performers. It's really amazing. So, again, there were like 40 people in the room. And so you could just about reach out and touch her. And it was just magic. And it was, it was a really great experience to go to a concert like that where no one's obviously making any money. You know, I, I think they must have. I, I hope they covered their costs at least. You know, the cost of the food. And, um, you know, they obviously didn't pay the performers anything. And... It, it, just those sort of intimate events, I really like them. And I think it sort of affected, you know, now these days a lot of, if you go to a lot of concerts, you have to pay $200 to go and see someone in a stadium with 80,000 other people. And it's a very different sort of event, I think. And um, I, I really liked it. It was it was really great to, to go to an event like that that was really put on by people just for the love of actually putting on a cool event. It was really great. That's really cool. And did you, how much of that were you expecting and how much was a surprise to you? It, it was almost a complete surprise I had because they just sent an email saying there's going – I think they'd actually done a series of events of a, in a similar sort of format, but I'd, I had no idea what I was getting into. So, And again, I, I don't think they advertised at all. I think they just – they had a mailing list or something, and the first 40 or 50 or however many people to reply got to go. And it, it was great. It's I think – you know, I used to – when I was – I used to listen to a lot of rock music, and then I was really into electronic music for a while, and – now when I go out to live music, I actually I often like to go out to jazz. And I just, I really like the, the small venues and there's a much more, there's a bit more of a sort of connection with the performance, I think, which I really like. Yeah. So yeah, that was, it was a fantastic experience. That is really cool. Would you mind if I shared a, a short story of my own? No, of course. So I remember I was, uh, so one of my favorite bands is a band called Dream Theater. They're big enough that if you go to a con- concert of theirs now, it's, Two to five thousand people, I'd say, you know, in a in a theater type venue. But uh, right, okay. they did one tour with Deep Purple and Emerson Lake and Palmer, and you know, this was not like their early days or anything. So they were certainly well enough known to command their own stadium or their own venue. But um, they were touring with with uh, these other groups who were obviously legends in the right, right. in the rock scene. And 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 it was funny. We arrived, and I don't know. I was probably about you know, late 20s at the time. And of course, we show up and we are, um, the, the crowd is very clearly divided into people our age. And uh, the, the majority were people who were about 15 years older, because of course, that's, I don't know, 15 right, or 20. Right. They were going to see Deep Purple when they were starting out when they e- were 20, right? <laughs> exactly. And Dream Theater opened, obviously, you know, Deep Purple's a huge name and people were there to see them as well as EL- ELP. But, uh, but what it meant was that <laughs> the hundred or so of us that were there to see Dream Theater you know, in this venue that held, uh, at a guess, like eight to 10,000, we're like right up on the stage. Right, because so, no one else cared, right? <laughs> no one else cared. They were all getting beer and, and hot dogs while Dream Theater was playing. It was super cool. And then on top of that, we got to stick around and see Deep Purple and uh, an ELP who were amazing, who sounded every bit as good as, uh, I mean, I didn't see the concerts they would have given when they were in kind of when they were first starting out, but they sounded awesome to me. So it was just a really, really fun thing. And, and it was exactly that. It was that, that intimacy made it special. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's always amazing as well when you see those groups who, who have been playing for years and years and they've been touring and, and you go to see them and they're, they're just so good at giving live performances. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're, if you're used to seeing people who are just sort of starting out and then you go to see one see someone who actually, uh, you know, once they're, they're actually really practiced and everything, they can, I mean, they're just amazing at, at doing it. Yeah. I would find it terrifying, I think. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, that's that's really cool. I appreciate you sharing that experience with us. That is a that is a exactly the sort of thing I love hearing about. But you know, we the tagline for the show is software and the people that create it. You are one of the people that create it. But we'd love to talk about your software. We don't have to limit ourselves to that. But I think uh, I think there are a lot of people in our audience who are aware of your work and uh, find it very interesting. I certainly number myself among those. Um, and of course, the thing that I am most used to hearing your name associated with these days is cursive. So maybe we could just kick off right there. And for the few people that might not know, you could explain uh, what cursive is. And then I'd love to hear about how you came to decide to create this thing, which has caught the attention of so many people. Sure. So so cursive is basically an editor for Clojure and Clojure Script Code. It's a plugin to IntelliJ, which provides a really great, uh, it's a really, really great infrastructure for building IDEs. And yeah, well, that's that's basically what it does. I mean, it's quite a complete environment, I guess. Um, the main competitor would be Emacs, probably, but obviously things like Vim and, and Lighttable are also uh, very popular as well. Um, those tools don't tend to be quite so integrated, so Cursive actually has support for lining and built right in, so the idea is you can actually hopefully do pretty much everything from within the IDE. We're not there yet, but it's uh, it's getting there. It's getting better and better over time. And yeah, so I actually spoke at the Conj last year about it, and it was really great. It was uh, I, I was really I don't know I, I was really pleased by the response. I guess um, you know the, the demo people really loved the demo of seeing seeing I guess what sort of differentiated cursive because I think a lot of the a lot of the existing solutions are fairly similar. And that um, I mean I talked in the at the Conj that I think the fundamental distinction is that most of the editors for Clojure Code that are out there are really fundamentally text editors. They don't really have any semantic understanding of the code. And that's what IDEs have traditionally provided for for languages like Java, for example. I mean, IntelliJ is just an amazing tool for working with Java code because it has a very, very deep understanding of the language. So Cursive does a similar sort of thing. It has a lot of understanding of the semantics of Clojure baked into it. And, and again, it, it's... It, it's a lot of work to actually do that. I mean, you end up really duplicating a lot of the work of the of the compiler and the, of the associated tools in the um, in the editor itself. But it allows you to provide a lot of a lot of intelligence around the editing experience that I think a lot of the the other tools don't provide. They are getting better. Emacs has a lot of there's a now some refactoring tools for Emacs and. Uh, there are some that will actually mark errors in the editor while you're editing. So I think the tooling for Emacs is always is always improving a lot because I think the fact that it's open source really helps with that. It has a big community and there's obviously a lot of people using it. So people tend to scratch their own itch. But yeah, so so that is pretty much what Cursive is. I I mean I originally got into it. I've been a, I was a Java developer for a long time before I started working with Clojure, and I actually started playing around with Clojure while I was still at my previous job, where I was um, I was doing a lot of Java work, and and I really didn't want to learn Emacs. I mean I used Emacs a lot back in the day when I was writing C plus plus code, but I I just I don't know, I had these memories of spending like twenty five percent of my billable time maintaining my .emacs file, and uh, <laughs> and I, and once you've actually had a lot of the niceties that an IDE can provide for a language like Java, it's very difficult to go back to feeling like your code is just text on a page again. And so, 
IntelliJ actually, uh, the JetBrains rather, had a plugin for Clojure code within IntelliJ, which was called LaClojure, and that had been developed by a couple of the JetBrains developers in their spare time and in their 20% time as well. But I used it and it wasn't, it was still fairly limited. There was still a lot missing from it. The Ripple wasn't very good. There was no PowerEdit support. There was no integration with Linegan. It was, so it was still fairly limited. So I just started working on it as as an open source thing. And it was all written in Java at the time. So most of the JetBrains IDE products are all written in Java, even though their Python and Ruby IDEs are all actually written in Java. And and obviously I didn't want to be writing Java because I did that all day at work. So I started porting the bits that I was working on bit by bit to Clojure. And and now most, probably most of the interesting bits of cursive are all written in Clojure. So I gradually sort of got into it and I was, I had a, a fairly massive fork at the time because I basically forked it and had done a bunch of migration work and it was really quite incompatible with the with the upstream Clojure. And I was, I was talking to the JetBrands guys about merging it back in, but then I'd left my previous job. The company had been acquired and I decided I didn't want to go work for the acquirer. And so I was looking around for something interesting to do. So I figured I would try and make a product out of it and see if there was, an, see if there was enough demand to make a commercial product. And that was how I got into it. So I, I actually had an experience with Cursive recently. I was at a client doing some work. They're actually a Python shop. Uh, they're, using, okay. they're using Datomic and they've uh, written some, some closure code as the best way to, uh, to integrate Datomic with their Python product. Uh, so sure. they're, not, they're not primarily closure people. But they, they're competent developers and they're able to maintain closure. Um, but they have chosen, and, and I think some of this was just uh, addresses this fact that historically we've faced in the closure community, which is, you know, if you go back, you know, certainly five, six years ago, somebody said, I want to learn closure. We, we say, well, first step, go learn Emacs, come back in 10 years after you've done that. And then right. we'll talk about closure. And, and so they had chosen to use cursive. And so I was working with these developers and I was uh, mentoring them through some changes that, that we were making. And I said, well, why don't you do the driving? Because I think it's better for people to learn if they do that. And they said, okay, great. So they pull up cursive. And uh, I had this experience of, um, so I'm, I'm a hardcore Emacs person myself, but you know, so that's just where I live right now. But I had this experience of saying, well, we need to make this change. And I forget exactly what it was, but it was something along the lines of, we need to rename a thing and we need to rename it in a bunch of places. And, and in my Emacs head, I was like, okay, well, this is going to take a few minutes because we've got to go here, do this, 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 and then make sure it all works. And uh, the person I was working with hit a couple keys and they said, okay, now what do we do? Because it was done, right? Because, right. because as you said, cursive offers sort of deep integration. And, and I was, and I had known that because I saw your talk at the conj and, and I, I played with cursive a little bit, but I have to say it really struck me viscerally to see somebody who wasn't as experienced with closure as I am, or even with the tool they're using as I am with the tool that I use, accomplish something that's a fairly common task quite effort- effortlessly compared to how I would do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think there's um, you know, some of those very basic things that, that Cursor has provided for a while. I mean, things like find usages. So you know, in anything in the code, where is this used? you know to how is it used what is it what does it look like where's it defined you know those those sorts of tools are just incredibly powerful and like you say being able to rename things being one of the things that 
cursor doesn't support very well at the moment that I would like to is being able to move things around. But, you know, so to be able to say, take this function and put it in this other namespace and update all the namespace references and everything and, you know, remove aliases from one space, from one namespace where they're not required anymore and add them to other namespaces where they are. Warn the user if that introduces um, circular dependencies, like all those sorts of things, you know, they really... For me, I think they really help the the development the development experience. I think, you know, as developers, I think a lot of us have probably had that kind of experience where you, you know, you get sort of totally lost in your work and you're really you're focusing on what you're doing and you know you forget whether you you know you need to eat or you need to go to the bathroom or what time of day it is or what day of the week it is and you just sort of get really focused and those sorts of tools really really help i don't think i think the the tool that has most given me that experience really has been intellij uh, working on java code because everything i want to do is right there every operation i want to perform on the code itself i just give that command directly to the ide and the ide does it and it always works every time and and that's, that's very very powerful because it means you're not you know, when you want to extract a function, you're not thinking, okay, so I need to copy this little bit of code here, and then I, where am I going to put it? Okay, so I'll put it up here, and I go up here, and then I build the function scaffolding around it, and then I work out what my parameters need to be, and then I put those parameters there, and then I go back to where the function came from, and and and, and on and on and on and on and on. You know, it takes so some of these operations are actually when you start thinking about what they involve, they're surprisingly they're surprisingly complex. You know, um, I mean, you use the example of renaming something, and that's you know. For a lot of things, when you rename them, you can pretty much grip with a new project and go through and do it by hand. But, but even that, like you say, in a big project, is time consuming. So I think being able to directly express the operations that you want to perform on your on your program is a very powerful concept. You know, closure the language makes it more difficult than a language like Java does, for example. It's being dynamically typed, and it has a very sort of the semantics of closure are very dynamic, which make a lot of this tooling more difficult. But so with Java, I mean, with IntelliJ, the refactorings are pretty much perfect. I mean, they there are occasionally bugs in the IDE and whatnot, but they they pretty much do what you want to do. You, you you can just rely on them. You just do it, and you don't even go and check the you know twenty files that it modified to see if it did the right thing because you just assume that it did. So um, I, I'm sorry, I want to jump in because that's a kind of a yeah, surprising sure. statement to me um, in a way because you know one of the things that we Lispweenies like to tout is the fact that because our language is homo-iconic, we've got these programs that are themselves data. Right. And one of the arguments thrown about by at least people who are ignorant of, you know, building tooling such as myself is that that should make tooling easier. And here I think I hear you're saying in a way tooling is harder. Now, is that because with IntelliJ, someone has already done the hard work of you know, parsing Java and the fact that you have information associated with the program from a statically typed language is, is is present versus the fact that Clojure is a dynamic language, or is there, or am I missing something? And, and it actually there is something about the code being data that doesn't actually help at all. Well, so the fact that the code is data helps helps with parsing the language, right? So it's relatively easy to parse Clojure code and get back a bunch of lists and vectors and whatnot. That is actually still pretty far removed from what an actual AST that you want to be working with looks like. So it is easy for fairly for fairly simplistic transformations. And so obviously, I mean, pretty much everyone once they have a bit of experience working with Clojure code ends up using PowerEdit because you know you can move everything around and it's um 
the basic operations on the program elements become quite a lot easier um, and it's much easier to make sure your parentheses remain balanced and whatnot. But it, that's a very that's a very superficial level of understanding of the code. PowerEdit will happily let you, I don't know, move your try block out of your catch block, for example, because mm. there's no idea that the try block and the catch block are actually associated. It just thinks they're two lists. So at, at quite a superficial level, it does make parsing the code easier, but parsing is really not the hard bit about doing those sorts of semantic operations. You need to understand what a try block and a catch block actually are, or what the semantics of them are. So, and and there's there's a lot of things like that. So you can, it provides a fairly superficial level, but it doesn't solve the hard problem. It doesn't really tell you anything about the semantics of the language. I mean, it, again, if you have a try catch block, or I don't know, a def record, or any closure form, and you parse that into a bunch of lists and vectors, the editor still doesn't know anything about what that actually means. So I want okay that makes perfect sense to me. Can we can, I want, let's 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 go I don't know is it up a level down a level anyway let's let's mm -hmm. move a level in some direction and so then I want to go back and compare. So I'm just trying to understand that makes sense. So you have this sort of semantic layer. Is it that the Java syntax is because there's more of it that it's it's more semantically significant that once you parse it you're closer to the semantics of the program than you are. In closure, where if I parse it, I've just got a pile of lists and the semantics are still farther away than, oh, well, this thing was definitely a class because it was a class followed by a name followed by curly brace. Yeah, I, I mean, I think once you've parsed Java source code, you know what you're dealing with. Parse a class declaration and it has its methods within it, whatever. So you parse that and you know exactly what you have. There's no, because the, the semantics, if you like, are, are purely compile time in that sense. Clojure isn't like that. So, so Cursive doesn't actually use the Clojure reader when it's, when it's parsing. I actually have a Lexer and a parser built in. But the Clojure reader, a fundamental part of reading in Clojure is evaluation. So you basically read your top-level forms one by one, and you evaluate them as you go. Because you need to do things like, if you're defining macros, you need to be you need to be defining those macros in your namespace as you're parsing. And the later code doesn't make sense until that earlier piece of the code is parsed. So if you have a piece of code that has a def macro, and then following the def macro is you actually invoke that macro, if you don't know about the def macro beforehand, the macro form itself makes no sense. So the problem is, is that the semantics of Clojure depend on the dynamic evaluation of the language, and that makes a lot of the stuff quite hard. So you can't just parse a Clojure file into a bunch of parentheses and work out what it all means. It's actually quite difficult. So Cursive actually has an extension API built in where I can teach it about different forms and what they mean. But but it is it is difficult. It is difficult to just look at a little chunk of Clojure code and to work out what it actually means. The fact that the fact that everything is built out of very few primitives is both a blessing and a curse. Uh, it makes the parsing easier, but then trying to work out what the semantics are quite difficult. Gotcha. D does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I th that makes perfect sense. All right, well, that answers the question that I so rudely interrupted you. Uh, I have personally lost track of where you were at, but maybe you can remember the thread of where we were when I, when I jumped off the rails there. I may have lost the thread as well, <laughs> That's all right. That's okay, because there are lots <laughs> yeah. of things that we can talk about. And uh, the one of them is uh, I'm interested in how the experience has been. So we ran the 
uh, this year uh, because Ch- Chaz Emmerich uh, and his wife had twins. <laughs> right, uh, right. He so asked, he had both hands full. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I can't even imagine. But yeah, so he he asked us to run the state of closure survey, and and the big surprise for us, and I think for a lot of people, was the just the massive uh, uptake of cursive. I mean, it's you know certainly we live in kind of a in some ways at least a cutting edge uh, or avant garde programming culture, right? Like closure still not mainstream. Um, right. So maybe it's not that surprising people are picking up tooling, but at the same time for cursive to go from to, you know, cursive what now to the tool that is, I, th- I think it finished third after um, I say it like it's a race. And of course it's not about, <laughs> no, about no. numbers, but, but you know, that, that so many people were trying it and, and obviously having a good experience. What, what, what was that kind of like for you? I mean, you put it out in the world. What was your kind of, first hint that people were picking this thing up in, in large numbers? I mean, firstly, the, the state of closure was great. It was as much of a surprise to me as anyone else, I think. It mm-hmm. was, uh, I mean, I knew, it, it's sort of interesting when you work on on a project, an open source project or something like Cursor, because you sort of put it out there and it's quite difficult often to tell how many people are actually using it. You know, occasionally issues turn up in the issue tracker and so I figured there's someone out there using it and, and finding problems, but I guess you never hear from a lot of the people who are using it and, and are not having problems. And I, w- I was actually amazed by that as well. So it actually would essentially came in tied second with Vim. There was there was Cursor was actually second, but there was one vote in it. So I think we can safely call that a tie. <laughs> okay. Um, um, but yeah, I certainly I'd expected. Well, I mean the the usage had to go up from the previous state of closure survey, which was right after I brought it out. So I brought it out in public beta first in October of the of the previous year, and then the state of closure survey was in November, so there were like three people using it at the time, including me. So I, I knew the usage had gone up from that, but I didn't realize how much it had gone up. So it was really fantastic, and, and it has been really great over the year, over the sort of year or year and a half, I guess now, since it's been out, that, you know, I, I feel much better about where it is now. When I first brought it out in public beta, there was still, there was still a lot of problems with it. It was still pretty ropey, but I think it it does speak to a lot of the difficulty uh, with the tooling foreclosure at the moment that people are willing to use something that's buggy as hell and has a lot of problems just because it's they still think it's better than the alternatives. So, you know, at Emacs, I think once you, like you say, once you've spent the 10 years getting better at it and if you're willing to spend a lot of time maintaining your editor, you can make a really fantastic closure development environment out of it. But it's still, for someone starting out, that that's very difficult. It's a huge wall to have mm-hmm. to come across. And I think, you know, I'm optimistic that Cursive will actually be very helpful for closure adoption as well, because I oh, think yeah. something like something like Cursive is much, much easier for people to pick up. So I still have uh, a lot I need to do there, but one of my big goals is for it to be easy for people to just get going, uh, while at the same time not sacrificing the, the sort of eventual power that you find after you've worked with a tool for a long time. I mean, we ab- I absolutely agree. I was at a uh, closure meetup just uh, before this interview, and uh, we were saying exactly the same thing. And I think it's even beyond here's a tool that's easy to get going with to well, we when we, meaning Cognitech, look around right now, we see significantly increased adoption of closure in the enterprise, by which I mean large companies. And I think there's a certain legitimacy to... Um, being embedded in a tool like IntelliJ that are, is in heavy use for Java development and other languages too, I suppose, in places like that to say, well, that's you can do closure there too. It's it's a really, I think it's a really big deal that that exists. Yeah, I think so, and and I think it's, I mean, it it definitely helps from a credibility point of view, but I think also for 
um, you know, just from a practical point of view for developers, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I think developers who are who have been programming Java for years, a lot of these companies have, I, I imagine a lot of those companies are not coming from Ruby and Python, they probably have enormous Java systems, and they're looking to replace or augment or or generally talk to them from newer systems built in Clojure. So, you know, the developers have probably been working with Java for a long time, they're used to the IDEs. And once, if you have a really good tool like, like IntelliJ for Java, as nice as Emacs is, even once you're over the hump, it is difficult to go back to to a different sort of a different way of thinking about your tool. I think, and a different way of thinking about your program. I mean, when I'm when I'm working on particularly on Java code with IntelliJ, I really have this feeling that I'm sort of like reaching into the structure of my program and manipulating it directly. And that's something that that really you you can never really get with an edit like Emacs because it's not just built like that. So I mean, Emacs has a lot of other benefits. You know, it's it's lighter weight, it's it's faster, but but it doesn't provide that sort of again that sort of semantic awareness. That I think a lot of a, a lot of what the difference comes down to, and I think for developers who are used to having that for Java would find it very difficult to go back mm -hmm. to to something like Emacs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I think uh, again, not having spent a lot of time with Cursive or even much time with Cursive, unfortunately. The analogy for me that holds with what you're saying is uh, when I describe Peredit to people, uh, you know, it's like it's like that. It's well, I want to stop working with my program purely as characters and lines and and maybe even words and paragraphs. So that's kind of an odd analogy, and start working at it as with it as a tree. But what you're saying is that although Peredit brings you partway down that path, what you're uh, what you've achieved with with cursive is to is considerably farther along that dimension. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I would say probably what I'm in the process of achieving with cursive because it's definitely not there yet. Um, <laughs> sure. but, it's a, but yeah, I, I do think it's it's another step. And I think it's an important step because you can't, there's, there's a lot of a lot of refactoring tools. I mean, cursive has really great static and um, or IntelliJ rather in general has really great static analysis right in the editor that cursive does some of. And and to be able to do that sort of analysis, especially live in the editor, um, is very, very powerful. And you really need to have a proper a proper syntax tree with semantic knowledge of your program to be able to do that. What about the debugger? That's the one thing that I absolutely don't have in Emacs, although I understand there might be ways to set up. I know Hugo Duncan's done some work there, but certainly with something like Cursive, it, it feels and actually this is where I this is where I have used Cursive, is on the rare occasion where where I'm like, right now, the tool I absolutely need is a debugger. I, that was the last time I busted it out, and, and, it, and it worked quite well for me. Is that, how important do you think that is as a part of the development experience? Because, I mean, there are people like me who have survived the last five years, perhaps in ignorance, <laughs> um, yeah. without really ever using a debugger much at all. Sure. I mean, clearly you can you can develop without a debugger, though. But I think, and I'm actually, I'm talking about the debugging Clojure code with cursive at Clojure West, and I think it's you know I think probably the talk was accepted because there is a lot of interest in actually having an easy to use debugger for Clojure code. So I I mean I personally think it's very important. I use the debugger every day. It depends probably a bit on the sort of work you're doing. I mean if you're working on a smaller project where you wrote all the code yourself or you have a small team that wrote all the code, it's easier to it's easier to get by I think with a REPL. So I guess. The, the alternative to a debugger for Clojure tends to be using a REPL to sort of interactively develop, to break your code down into small parts and test the small parts independently. And then 
link those parts together and test the the sort of combinations as you build your program up. And I, I think that's a very valuable that's a very valuable development model. I think, but. But there are times when you just need a debugger. So, for example, developing Cursive itself, I'm integrating with the IntelliJ platform. I mean, it's this absolutely humongous, humongous thing. I mean, it has millions of lines of code. The API is enormous. There's almost no documentation. Um, there's, there's a lot of sort of getting started documentation now. But once you start getting really into the more complicated things, there's no Java doc on the code. There's very, or very little anyway. And, and in that sort of situation, you do, you can't live without a debugger, basically. I just have to be able to stop and see what IntelliJ is giving me back at certain times. I could just, I, I could, you know, rebuild it with a print, a print LN and rerun it again, but it, it's very, very slow compared to actually interactively going in. So I actually, and I fixed the debugger up recently, I guess about a month or so ago as well. So now expression evaluation works in, mm. um, in Clojure. So you can stop at a breakpoint, you can evaluate expressions. Um, I'm thinking about actually building a, a little ripple on top of that as well. So, and, and there are a lot of things with, that the debugger allows you to do that you really can't do in, in a lot of other ways. So you can actually put breakpoints saying, when this sort of exception is thrown, stop there and show me what's going on. That I think is a lot, what a lot of people who have come from a common list background to Clojure miss sure. with, with something like Slime. So you can, you know, you get some sort of exception and you can stop and see what's going on. Common Lisp actually takes it further and says, you know, what do you, what do you actually want to continue doing from this point? That's harder to do in, just because of JVM limitations. But, but being able to stop when an exception is thrown and see what's happening is, is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, that's cool stuff. I, the, the exception point is an, is an excellent one. Uh, that's 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 probably thinking back. I think out of the ten times I've needed a debugger over the last uh, five years, or I guess finally admitted I needed a debugger might be a better way to put it. <laughs> yeah. probably seven of them have been exactly that situation. Right, and and I mean I do think it's probably one of those things that, like you say, you can live without it if you don't have it. If you have it, I do think a lot of people would tend to use it more. I mean, people have different workflows. I mean, some people have said, you know, I just never use the debugger. I'm not interested. I, I do. I do sometimes feel like, like there's a bit of Stockholm syndrome going on with that. You know, I don't have a debugger, therefore I don't need it. But, you know, maybe some people really don't find it that useful. So the debugger does have some limitations. And again, I'm going to talk about that at Clojure West, that just limitations from from the fact that we're debugging on the JVM. So they're really JVM limitations rather than uh, traditional debuggers in, in a functional language can be quite difficult as well. Things like lazy evaluation sure. and whatnot can, can make debugging quite difficult. But, but I, mean, I, mean, I personally find it valuable. I, I use it continuously every day, basically. So you mentioned uh, that it's a closure and a closure script development environment. I, I'd like to hear more about that. I, I mean, are there particular um, uh, niceties around using cursive when you've got both of those things in your technology stack? Yeah, well, I think Cursive actually provides very nice support now for editing ClojureScript code. Uh, what it doesn't have great support for still is, are actually running ClojureScript ripples. So you can run a, um, the standard sort of ClojureScript ripple within a within a Clojure ripple. It's actually one of the things I'm I'm just refactoring a lot of the ripple code now to to hopefully support the new um, socket ripples that were talked about on the mailing list the other day, and also to talk, to support ClojureScript ripples. But the editing support is really nice. So so Cursive actually rather than introspecting a ripple as many as well as most of the of the I guess alternative editing environments do so something like Emacs for example when you're actually editing closure code you start your ripple and 
Emacs uses, introspects the REPL for a lot of what it needs to do. So if you want to jump to the definition of a form, for example, or of a symbol, Emacs will go out to the REPL and it'll introspect the metadata on the VAR and it will use that to take you and your editor to where you want to go. So Cursive doesn't actually do that. Cursive actually indexes all the all the code by parsing source code. So it's actually all done on source analysis. And that has it has its pros and cons. There's a lot to be said for it and also has some problems with, with a language like Clojure. But one of the really nice things about it is that it means that everything pretty much transparently works for uh, for ClojureScript as well. And I know that that Emacs, for example, struggled to provide a lot of ClojureScript tooling for quite a while there because you couldn't introspect the ClojureScript REPL in the same way that you could a Clojure REPL. And most of the editing functionality was based around that. So things like getting documentation, jumping to point, uh, macro expansion is probably not so, not so important with ClojureScript. But, but a lot of that basic functionality is actually provided by the REPL. And since the ClojureScript REPL didn't, Clojure didn't have VARs at runtime, it couldn't provide a lot of that. So um, out, over time, they actually developed, um, Gary Trackman did some really great work getting that information from the artifacts that are built by the ClojureScript compiler. So now I think, uh, as I haven't actually used it, but as I understand it, editing ClojureScript code in Emacs is pretty much like editing Clojure code. But the nice thing with Cursive was I really didn't have to do a huge amount of work to support ClojureScript out of the box because it's all just source code. It all basically looks the same. And so, for example, editing support for uh, for Pixie, Timothy Baldridge's language, might actually not be too much work either. It's something I've thought about doing. So, so, and that was one of the really big advantages, I think. So, yeah, hopefully, I'll have some some better ClojureScript, a better ClojureScript Ripple story quite soon, and that I think will be a big part of the. Hopefully, it'll be a really nice environment for ClojureScript at that point. Very cool. I think uh, ClojureScript is, uh, you know, we've said on the show before that if in the future Clojure becomes far more widely adopted than it is, and, you know, there's some motion in that direction, but obviously it's still, you know, not it's a market. It's still fairly niche, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're clearly, you know, we'd be, and anyone that claimed that it's on a par with Java in terms of market adoption is clearly delusional. <laughs> yeah, or, or even Scala. I or mean, even... Scala, Scala has much, everything I've seen says that Scala has quite, has a lot higher adoption than Clojure just because I think it's more familiar for Java programmers. It's less of a, less of a leap. Right. So, but the point, but the point, I, I to, right, can't disagree. I think it's interesting to note that if Clojure ever does become far more widely adopted than it is now, that it's entirely possible that the vector through which it will do that is actually closure script. I'd, absolutely, yeah. I'd, I've uh, I've thought that for a long time, and I think particularly now with React Native coming out, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be very, very interesting. I mean, the you know there are several orders of magnitude more people developing iPhone applications than there are developing closure applications right now, and if we can get some of them interested in in Clojure, in development via React Native, I think that's going to be that could be potentially huge for the Clojure Clojure ecosystem. Yeah, and I think the dynamics are different too of that marketplace. You know, around things like what languages people have available to them. I, I feel like there's a fairly wide variety in the space where Clojure on the JVM occupies versus what people have available to them, or at least maybe perceive they have available to them for the types of environments that Clojure where Clojure script would be useful. Yeah, although I do think React Native will will expand that as well. I mean, essentially, React Native will allow you to write apps with anything that targets JavaScript, um, which is which is a lot wider than it is now. I mean, now you have Objective C and Swift if you're really brave, right? So I think, and I, I know there are a few there are a few applications out there. I mean, Mike Fikes actually has an application in the App Store now written in ClojureScript before React Native came out. He did some really great work on that, but but I think widespread 
there were really only objective C apps basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's really the only, the only realistic option. And it's the only option with good tooling as well. I mean, if you use something like Python or Ruby to develop it via the various bridges, and I, and I actually don't know what the legal story is about releasing um, apps on the app store in those languages, but React Native, I think, will open that space right up. And I think ClojureScript is very well positioned to, to get a lot of mindshare of those developers. Well, cool. So I want to talk about something else that you mentioned, you touched on briefly, you said that you're making cursive into a, a, a business. And I think that is an absolutely wonderful thing. It is crucial that we have applications, paid applications that fill all sorts of niches, including the one that you're addressing, which is say tooling, um, for a variety of reasons. But you know, I imagine knowing the programming community the way that I do, <laughs> that you get questions about this, right? Or, or possibly even uh, people challenging you on it. I, I wonder if that's been the case, and um, what your response or your your take on that has been. Um, actually, I've been quite surprised. I must admit, I expected a lot more pushback than. Um... I expect a lot more pushback than I've actually received. A lot of people have been very enthusiastic and a lot of people are enthusiastically trying to throw money at me. I'm actually not selling cursive yet. Mm -hmm. um, and and I actually regularly receive questions on, on Twitter and by email about you know, when am I actually going to start selling this thing because people actually want to pay for it. I, and I was quite surprised by that. I'd, I have spoken to people who have said that it's important to them to only use open source tools. So. So when I was first starting out with Cursive, I actually posted a thread on the Clojure mailing list and just asking about whether there was interest in paying for tools. And I spoke to a few people. I, I spoke to a couple of people who were who were a little bit jaded about the ability to sell developer tools to developers. I think that a couple of people said that they felt like developers were very resistant to paying for tools, which I find quite surprising. I think there's there's such massive scope to increase your productivity with good tools and and good tooling takes a lot of time. I mean, Cursive is, has been a full-time job for a year for me just to get it where it is and and I couldn't have done it in much less time than that. So, you know, sooner or later for that to be sustainable, I'm going to have to get money from it somehow. But, and so, I, yeah, I was surprised. And I, and like I say, you know, some people say, you know, I'm not going to use it because it's not open source and, and I'm okay with that. You know, there's plenty of plenty of editors around for them and there's plenty of people around who who are happy enough to pay for tooling hopefully to make a business out of it it's uh, that remains to be seen i mean it's a bit of a it's a bit of an unknown i mean i i have some usage debt so i have some ideas i have a rough idea of how many people are actually using cursive how many of those will actually end up paying for it is is quite an unknown so i, I don't know i mean i do think I, I've never had a problem paying for IntelliJ, for example, and JetBrains have obviously made a very, very successful business out of it. I mean, they're, they're really, you know, they have offices around the world now. They have some some extremely fancy Google-style offices now in St. Petersburg, so they're obviously doing something right. And and I think, you know, PyCharm and RubyMine, which are their Python and Ruby IDEs, I think they do really well. And And again, these are languages where people have traditionally used open-source tools, you know, Vim or, or Emacs or... Uh, sublime text or whatever, but there obviously are a lot of people out there who are willing to who are willing to pay as long as the price is reasonable for for good tools. So so I hope that turns out to be true of Clojure as well. Well, I for one will certainly be um, paying for a license because, as I said, uh, I have found Cursive to be the best solution when I need a debugger. That's a situation where I would be silly not to pony up um, any reasonable asking price you could have to to accomplish a task that. Can, it cannot easily be accomplished in any other way. I mean, this is my client's time. That right, it only has to save you a couple of hours, right? Exactly, it really does. Yeah. And yeah. good tooling. 
I mean, your kit's a classic example for me. I've used um, JVisual VM, and, and maybe I'm just really bad at it, but I kind of don't think so. But I have on multiple occasions wasted two hours messing around with JVisual VM, finally gotten fed up with it, and then gone to use your kit and solve the same exact problem that I'd been wrestling with in you know five to ten minutes. Brian, yeah. so it's ob- it's obvious to me. Anyway, so I, I mean, obviously here we are. It's like preaching to the choir, obviously, but uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's cool. And the other thing that I think is really interesting about having um, a commercial tool is that you know we come back to the the legitimacy in the eyes of enterprise. I mean, I think that there is a there is a sense in which having a, a for pay tool with everything that implies, including someone whose income is on the line to support the thing lends credibility to the tool and therefore reflects well on the associated language and community in the eyes of certain organizations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, larger organizations, I mean, you know, larger organizations like to, they like to feel like the business, you know, if, because for them, switching to Clojure, for a lot of people, I mean, if they're doing a, a small project or whatever, switching to Clojure is no big deal, right? If they don't like it, they just switch somewhere else. But for, for large enterprises, you know, it, it's it's a serious investment for them, and they take that very seriously. So they, they want to know that that the tools that they rely on to do that are going to be around. And to be honest, I think for, for a lot of enterprises, it, I mean, it's just me working on Cursive at the moment, and I think for a lot of enterprises, even though it's commercial, the fact that it's only me is probably still uh, potentially an issue. I mean, I'm hoping it's not too much of an issue. But um, but yeah, you know, the, um, businesses particularly, I, I suspect the businesses is where, really where a lot of the money is in, in licenses. But yeah, I mean, they're very happy to pay for it. I mean, the you know, the amount... In general, I think for for a large company with a with a development with a group of developers, you know, the cost of tooling for them is just line noise compared to the costs of a lot of those companies. But you're right that it does actually it helps those companies have more confidence that the tools and the language are going to be around in, you know, five years or ten years or twenty years, which are the sort of timescales those companies think in. Well, cool. So I, th- I feel like that uh, that is a good, I mean, I'm, there's lots more we could talk about because, I mean, you've been spending a year on this. I'm sure there's a ton of interesting details we could dive into, but I, because we've talked about the past and a little bit about the present, I'm curious to uh, hear a little bit more about the future. I mean, I guess the business aspect is is, is a, uh, a future concern in, in one way, but um, what can you tell us about Cursive going forward, either any aspect of it, really, like just where you want to see it go, um, I don't know if you can share timelines. Just tell us, tell us what to look forward to. Sure. Well, I think um, I, I think a couple of big things coming up. So I, I basically I had a kind of bucket list for a version one that I wanted to get in before before starting to sell it. I mean, I think a few people who are who are demanding that I charge them money said that you know normally you'd start selling once you actually have a, a minimal viable product. I'd actually rather make sure that I have a solid version one and then sell that um, before I start taking people's money. But I think. And so I had a bucket list for that, and that's getting pretty short now. So the two big things that are on that, a good story for ClojureScript ripples. So there's quite a lot of work to be done there, I think. And I think ClojureScript tooling is still, uh, David Nolan's been doing some really fantastic work on that recently, but it's still, until very recently, it's been a major pain point for people, and that's definitely something I would like to solve. I think Lighttable did really, really well there. You know, just the the ease of use of starting working on some Clojure script and getting a REPL up in Lighttable is just fantastic, and, and nothing beats that at the moment. So, so that's my sort of goal with the with the Clojure script REPL tooling for Cursive. And then the other big thing is is an extension API. So that 
I think a lot of people, obviously, uh, one of the great things about Emacs is it's endlessly tweakable. You can, you know, you can build it into whatever you, whatever you want to do with it, really, with enough work. So, but for, for cursive, because, again, it has this understanding of the semantics of the language, when it parses macro forms that it doesn't understand, cursive can't know about the symbols that are defined in those macro forms. So if you have a, a custom macro that works like a let, for example, that has some local bindings. If cursive sees that macro form, it really has no way to know which symbols, which symbols are actually declarations that it should resolve to, um, you know, what the scopes of those symbols are and so forth. And then also for public things like vars, if you have a macro, a, you know, a diff, some kind of macro that creates a var, again, if cursive sees that form, unless it's taught about what that macro form actually means, it can't, it just can't treat it properly. So the extension API is really probably the big thing that I think has to be in there for a version one. Um, so that will basically allow people to write a fairly small amount of code actually to support third-party libraries either that they use or they develop. Obviously a lot of companies have in-house DSLs written in Clojure that they'd like support for. So I'm actually working with a company at the moment who are using Cursive um, and they have a, a financial modeling DSL that they want to support in Cursive 4. So um, that's quite interesting because it's quite different. The semantics are actually quite different to Clojure. So, so that's quite interesting. So, so being able to add, as a first step, symbol resolution support for third-party libraries, I think is really important. So I'm going to have a, a public GitHub repo that people can contribute to, something like um, there's a, a GitHub repo called Definitely Typed, which are type annotations for JavaScript libraries. So they have annotations in there for a lot of the, the popular JavaScript libraries. People contribute to it, and then the editors can take that and use it for support. So I'll actually have a public repo, and then I'll bundle that up, and I'll ship it with Cursive. So you know, there are a lot of libraries out there that rely very heavily on macros, libraries like Midge and Storm and, um, and Timber as well, the logging library that they're all examples of libraries that are very macro dependent, and Cursive still doesn't handle those very well. And, you know, I only have 24 hours in the day, so trying to add support for all those myself is, is not good. And that, that, I think, is one thing where having a closed commercial product is really a bit limiting because I, you know, I just I don't have that much time. And unless Cursive does fantastically well and allows me to hire a team, it's going to be me for the foreseeable future. So having going for a sort of hybrid um, open-closed model where I think, because all the existing resolution support is actually based around this extension API internally. So I'll be open sourcing all of that. So Cursive will be sort of half and half open and closed source. Um, and hopefully that will allow people to extend it and add things to it and to do what they need to do. So they're the two big things coming up. Uh, in terms of timelines, I, I'd hate to make a guess. I'd hope to have ClojureScript ripples probably going within a month and then the extension API maybe a month after that, but I've probably been saying that for the last year, so <laughs> so who knows. It's like a PhD, always two more years. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. That, that, that sounds amazing. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, to continuing to follow the development of, of, of Cursive. I mean, obviously, you're going to continue to work on this. I would love to have you back on. We can check in and, and see how it's going and, and of course, yeah, be watching. I, I don't want to cut off the conversation there, especially if there's anything else that uh, you'd like to, to share today. And it doesn't have to be about cursive. We spent the whole time talking about it so far because it's really interesting, but and I imagine it keeps you quite busy, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely does. Yeah. Is there is there anything else that we should we should cover or? Um, 
Um, no, um, no, I, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I could certainly, like you say, I could spend another three hours raising that cursive to anyone who would listen. Um, I, I certainly did the, the uh, I mean, I, I really had a great time at the conj, actually. The, uh, the conj was really fantastic to be able to, I live in, in New Zealand, which is already pretty isolated, and I live in quite a small town in New Zealand, so there's basically no tech community here. So the conferences are really great to be able to go and catch up with people and, uh, and, and have a bunch of people who know what I'm talking about when I talk to them about it. it was, <laughs> right. Uh, it was really good. Yeah, I enjoyed meeting you there as well. Uh, it was it was cool, and your talk was great. So, great, thanks. Um, well, awesome. Well, then I guess we we can go ahead and and then wrap up the technical part of the discussion there. I, I think we will definitely have to have you back on. You've been a, a fascinating guest, and uh, and I know you're not standing still. So there'll be plenty to talk about the next time that we do. Um, right, thanks. Well, of course, it was our pleasure. But of course, we have to get one more bit of information out of you. Uh, I warned you about this one as well. At the end of the show, we ask our our guests to. To share a bit of advice with us, and for whatever that means to them. So, what would you okay. what would you like to advise us, Colin? I I would like to advise people to work a little bit less. I think it, so. My last my last couple of years have been pretty interesting. I, I worked. My previous job was very very demanding. I was I worked there for about six or seven years, and I worked you know up to you know sixty or seventy hours a week sometimes, and I had a lot of international travel, and it was and there were for various sort of reasons that the political situation at the company wasn't that great. So it was quite a, it was a very stressful job, I think. Um, and again, the company was acquired and I, I chose not to go work for the acquiring company. And that was, and and I mean, it was just brutal. I, I you know, I ignored my wife for enormous stretches of time. We went away on vacation and I had to come back from vacation at one point because our coherence install was melting down in production. We'd, I'd arranged to go and meet her in-laws and in the end I couldn't go because, rather my in-laws, her family, uh, and I couldn't go because, again, I can't remember what came up. There was a client meeting or I had to go to Mexico to do a demo or something. And... And so after that, I'd, I took a bunch of time off, and my wife and I travelled around for a bit. And then in the end, we, we were living in Europe at the time, and we settled in New Zealand. And I started on on cursive. But I think in our industry, it's very easy to sort of, and certainly I'm I'm as guilty of this as anyone. To, you get sort of very wrapped up in your work, and it's very easy to feel like what you're working on is very important, and it, it becomes almost slightly obsessive. I think people really get um, extremely involved. And they work, and, and there's a lot more out there. I mean, we we had a daughter a year ago who's uh, who's now running around the house and keeping us busy. And and for me, having having a lot of, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm in a very fortunate position. Um, you know, the acquisition worked out reasonably well financially for me, so I can sort of afford to do this. But but I think I'd, I've read quite a lot from people online who have actually started restricting the amount that they work. So Mark Watson, who who a few of the listeners might know, he writes a lot about artificial intelligence and um and he uses Clojure quite a lot as well. And he is he's semi retired now, I think, but he's basically made his living as an as an artificial intelligence consultant and he always limited his work to thirty two hours a week. And he had a a, a retrospective. And I, I actually I couldn't find this quote when I was looking for it before, so I hope I'm not misquoting him, but he said the only thing he regretted about restricting his work to 32 hours a week was that he didn't restrict it more. And similarly, Andy Wingo, who a few of the listeners might know, he's very involved in the Scheme community. He actually gave the keynote at the Scheme workshop, which was before the Clojure Conj. Um, I knew him when we lived in Barcelona. He's a fascinating guy. And he and he was the same. He was very into, you know, he hacks on open source, but he gardens and he has a black belt in Aikido and he plays the guitar and he does all this sort of stuff. And And he gradually restricted his working from five days a week to four days a week to three days a week. And I don't know anyone who's done that who hasn't 
who hasn't absolutely loved it. So I, I'm not down to three days a week at the moment, but I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, trying to just sort of make sure I, I appreciate things other than my work and my life. I don't, I don't carry a smartphone, for example, because I didn't want the, the endless distractions. So I think just take it easy and enjoy your family more and enjoy other things than software development, which is fascinating, but there's lots of other fascinating things out there too. Well, I, I could not agree I could not agree with you more. That is excellent advice, and I hope that the people that are listening will uh, take it to heart and, and follow it to the extent that they're able to. Uh, well, I have to thank you once again for taking the time. I mean, obviously, you're very, very busy doing extremely interesting work, so I really appreciate you coming on the show and taking the time to, uh, to talk to us. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. Oh, it has absolutely been our pleasure. We will have you back. We will, we will be watching for your presentation at, at Closure West and, and for the the 1.0 announcement of, um, of Cursive and all the other cool and uh, interesting things you're going to put into it. But uh, for now, we will close it down. We will talk to you again some other day. We will look forward to that. I will uh, end the show by saying, as always, thanks to our, our listeners and, and thanks again to Colin. This has been the Cognicast. listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. Our guest today was Colin Fleming on Twitter at Colin Fleming, C-O-L-I-N-F-L-E-M-I-N-G. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento, audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.